Well, before we jump in this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you know where you were four years ago today? That would be March 1st, 2016. I was in surgery. And... Um, I've shared part of my story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I still want to get to John. But I thought about this this morning. I was having cancer surgery. And uh, I was diagnosed with cancer in August of 2015, three weeks before we retired from full-time ministry in Minneapolis. And uh, we'd already bought a house here in Sioux Falls, so we were moving to Sioux Falls soon after August, the end of August. But I had surgery in August, the first time, to get the cancer in Minneapolis. And the doctor told me, he says, Steve, when you move, he said, you've got to find a lot of things, but the first thing you need to find is a doctor. Uh, they did surgery. I had bladder cancer. There was a tumor inside my bladder, and they did it, and they couldn't get it. So I'm in Sioux Falls, I had can uh, surgery two more times. Um, we moved here at the end, uh, beginning of September. I think I had surgery the next time. It was in October. Then I had surgery again in December or something like that of 2015. And the first week in January, we got the call that you never want to get. I don't even want to tell you the story, but I got the call f from the clinic that said, uh, my doctor wants to meet with me, and uh, if possible, bring your wife. Well, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I know what that means. They can always give you the good news on the phone, but they want to see you face-to-face. And so we met with our doctor, and um, what he told me in that next, uh, I'm going to cry, but he, what he told me then in the next um, 10 minutes was, uh, more or less, I drew the short straw. They can't get it. And he said, they've tried three times to cut out the tumor. They can't get it. It keeps growing. And I, I've learned a few things. Your bladder has three walls. The tumor is already eaten through the first wall. It's into the second wall. If it gets through the third wall, you're done. Because your cancer just spreads all over your body. And he said, but beyond that, he said, um, radiate, the kind of cancer I had, radiation does no good. And, neither, and chemotherapy won't help. And I kind of went into a, um, like a, I won't say that I had an out-of-body experience, but I felt like there's no way, there's no way that he can be telling me this. I felt like I was listening in on a conversation that he was having with some guy sitting next to Sharon. And uh, so that was it. And he said, the, the only thing we can do, we have one option here. We can uh, do sur surgery and take out your bladder and throw it away. And hopefully the cancer's still inside there. So, um, I was already scheduled to leave in about three weeks to go teach for three weeks in the Philippines. And I said, uh, what do you think? Can I still go to the Philippines? And he said, uh, well, he said, I can't. Nobody knows how fast that tumor is going to grow. 
And he said, you could go for three weeks and come back and we can do surgery. But he said, I can't, I can't promise that. So. so we told our kids, and who are both adults, and That next morning, I got an email from our kids that said, we took a vote. You're not going to the Philippines. <laughs> You're going to have surgery. So four years ago this morning, we were at Sanford Hospital, probably 5 o'clock in the morning with our kids, who both have their own kids, but our son and our daughter were there. And uh, it was... So those of you who have had surgery, you know what it's like. You're out there, you're on this table, this gurney in the, this table that's on wheels, and, and there's all kinds of, you know, for this surgery, there was my surgeon, and there was a backup surgeon, and there was an ethicist, and I think a backup anethicist, and three or four other medical, I don't even know who all these people are. And uh, so before I, they wheeled me into surgery, I said to my doctor, I said, are you okay if I pray for you before we go in there? And he and I had already shared. He's a solid Christian guy. Goes on mission trips to Asia regularly. Because the first question he said to me when I met him, you know, whatever that was, four or five months, he said, what brings you to Sioux Falls? Well, I said, I'm a retired pastor, and now I, my ministry is teaching and training pastors in other countries. And so we had a lot of good fellowship all this time. And uh, I said, can I pray for you? Yeah, he... Sure, he said, that'd be great. And then he said, and you have to understand, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I can't even tell you how many people I've been with who are about to go into surgery. I have never had this happen, not even one time ever. And I've been in a lot of hospitals. And then he said, can I pray for you? I have never had that. And I said, sure. I still remember that. And uh, I remember, you know, we still relive this periodically at home. I know what somebody's going to tell me, get over it. Well, I can't get over it. Don't tell me how long it's supposed to take. People grieve different times. And so I remember I kissed Sharon goodbye, and I, I wondered, did I ever see her again? It was just a little surgery. It only took five hours. And, you know, it was major. And, but then they couldn't wake me up after five hours. And I was sleeping pretty good, I guess. They said to Sharon, we need your help. We can't get him to wake up. And that's where I was four years ago today on March 1st, and I'll... As long as I live, we'll always remember what March 1st is. I've gone four years now. I'm still cancer-free. Praise God. But I have a scan coming up. And those of you who have battled cancer, you know you have to get to five years before they declare you cancer-free. So, it was meant to be that I'm still here and you're stuck with me as the interim. So... I'm glad I got to meet all you guys this side of heaven. It'd be easier to 
have that chat when we all get there together. So that's where we were. And then I was only supposed to stay in the hospital. They said four or five hour surgery, four or five days in the hospital, 12 days they sent me home. There's just something about Swedes. It takes longer for them to heal or something. I, I don't get all that, but praise God, I woke up from that surgery. And Sharon was the one that said, you're okay. I think they got it. So. And I'm not sorry for crying. You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had that day that he said, we'll go down in infamy. Well, our day's March 1st. So. Hey, it's good to be here this morning. I want you to take your Bibles. Let's open to the Gospel of John, and we're going to walk through another passage in here. Our goal, you know, as I've said many times, our goal is, has never been to get through the Gospel. Our goal has always been to get the Gospel through us. And we're doing this primarily by looking at three different things. The first thing is... Uh, Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the phrase, I am. Last week, we looked at one of those where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at another one of those. Seven times in the Gospel of John, we have these things called signs. Now, when we get to heaven, we can ask John why he did this. But for right now, we're going to look at these. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about miracles. John never mentions the word miracle. For him, whenever something miraculous happens, he uses the word sign. He uses the word sign just like the street sign out here on Marion Road. He wants the miracle to point to Jesus so that we have a better understanding when Jesus does this miraculous thing. There's no question that was God's son who intervened and did whatever needed doing. It's a, he called it a sign. And over the next week or two or five, whatever it is, we're going to look at another sign or two. The third thing we look at from among all 21 chapters is we're going to look at these, what I call our key words or important words within the gospel. So far we've looked at the word believe and we've looked at the word world. Now if we go from Genesis through Revelation, both of those words appear Hundreds of times throughout the 66 books. But 25% of the words believe and also the word world, 25% of those hundreds of times show up in the Gospel of John. In other words, if one of those words appears 400 times between Genesis and Revelation, you would sort of kind of think, well, Divide 400 by 66, and it probably shows up two or three times in each of the cities. No, that isn't it. There's nobody who uses the word believe more than John, and there's nobody who uses the word world more than John. So in the next week or two or five, whatever we have here, we're going to look at some other key words. But for this morning, we're going to look at another sign, okay? So if you have your Bibles open... Turn back a page or two. Go to John chapter 4. That's where we find ourselves today. And we find ourselves in the story of Jesus healing what is called a uh, royal official's son. It's a miracle. 
And Becca and Joel and whoever picked out that last song, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. That song, if there's a song that goes with this miracle, that's the song. Now, you didn't know that yet when you were singing that song, but I'm over here trying to sing that song, and all that I can think about is this miracle that happens in John chapter 4. Let's take a step back. John's purpose in writing this gospel is not just to tell us about people who come to faith, but his purpose is to also tell us that, yes, there are people who come to faith, but there are other people here within the Gospel of John who already have a little bit of faith. But John wants to describe for us how that little bit of faith, the size of a mustard seed, turned into the size of a faith that can move mountains. Okay? So that's what this story is all about. Now let's begin. John chapter 4. I'm going to read the first six verses. And yes, I'm going to stop at least six times in these six verses. So we're all on the same page. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Let me read that again. I want you to think about this. You know, there's one thing I've accused. There's one thing I've accepted blame for for years in my own life, and there's one thing I have accused I think that's the right word. There's one thing I have accused every person in every church where we serve as a pastor. We have two problems when we read the scripture. One is we read it too fast. Okay? And the other thing is, we don't read it nearly as often as we think we read it. But when we read it, we read it too fast. I'm guilty of that. It's like when I decide I want to read through the Gospel of John. It's like my goal is to get through the Gospel of John. No, my goal should be to get the Gospel of John through me. So let's slow down. John chapter 6, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. And he doesn't tell us how he learned this. Did somebody come up to Jesus and say, hey, you know, like Scott comes up and says, hey, I just had this conversation with the Pharisees. Or, or how did he learn what they had heard? I don't know. But most of the time I read through that so fast I don't even take the time to even stop and think. Now I like the way this is translated in the Berean Study Bible. It says this, when Jesus realized that the Pharisees were aware, they were aware that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Verse 2, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples, so he left, and I think we have a map of What's the Holy Land, the map up there? And you can follow along with that map while I tell you this. Verse 3 says, so he left Judea, that's way down south. And he went back once more, it says in verse 3, to Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples are way down south in Judea. And they're headed for Galilee in the north. Let's look at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. If you look at the map, you'll see Samaria is north of Judea. But it's south of Galilee. 
Well, if you're in Judea and you want to go to Galilee, the only way to get there is to go through Samaria. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, let's uh, stop. For those of us who have been hanging around church for years and years and years and years and years, we realize that we're about to get into the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. We're familiar with that story. We're not going to read that story. Instead, I want us Keep these geographic areas in your head. Skip ahead to verse 40. Verse 40 says, So when the Samaritans, now who are they? Well, the Samaritans are the people that live in Samaria. When the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Verse 43, after the two days, he left for Galilee. Now he's headed back north. He's still headed north to where he wanted to go before. Verse 44, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had all seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he turned the water into wine. You remember that story? That was the first sign. Cana, let's just think about this. I don't even know if it's visible up there. Well, it is if we really had a telephoto something or other. Just pretend we're all in Galilee. The city of Cana is eight miles north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Okay? So just picture that. I don't even know what that is. That's like from here to Harrisburg or some, I don't know. Close? You get the idea? Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Okay, let's get this in our heads. Capernaum is 16 miles north and east of Cana. Capernaum is that town, I've always sort of referred to it as on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Oh, that's where it is on this map too. Okay, so we got that. Okay, so he's in Cana. And this guy shows up who is from Capernaum, 16 miles north and east of Cana. Verse 47, when this man, my Bible calls it this royal official, when he heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from way down south in Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when the son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon. Now, some of you have Bibles that say yesterday at the seventh hour. Okay, well, it's the same time, but in the first century. In fact, I've thought about this. Jewish people, even today, when they celebrate their religious holidays, they're on a different clock. In their world, the day begins at 6 o'clock, sunrise. Okay, so picture this. It begins at 6 o'clock in the morning. So if the seventh hour would be 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Are you tracking with me? Some of us have Bibles that say the seventh hour. Some of us have Bibles that have changed that to the English version of time to one o'clock in the afternoon. So five years ago, I was in Ethiopia. 
on a teaching trip. That was way back. That was before cancer, before anything. We were still happy. and every, Well, we're still happy. But, um, so I'm riding in a car with a pastor from Ethiopia. And I look. Now let me see if I can get this right. So I look and it was 9 o'clock in the morning. And I looked at the dash of his car. And it said 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, I said, your clock's the wrong time. What, am I, what right do I have to tell a pastor who's nice enough to give me a ride in his car in Ethiopia, your clock's got the wrong time. No, he said, this is our time. It's 4 o'clock. No, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, in their world, the day starts at 6 o'clock. Their clock is like that. So I don't know how they get along with the rest of the world. I don't know how that works. And I'll tell you another thing about Ethiopia that I don't understand, although I love the people there. They have 13 months in their calendar. Whoa. So when we're trying to schedule, when are we going to come back for the next teaching trip? That was an adventure. Because if I said we're coming back June 14th, they've got to stop. But they can do this. This I don't understand. Without looking at their computer or anything else, I tell Gary, he's from Ethiopia, we're going to be back on June 13th. And they tell all their people in Ethiopian, Arabic or whatever that language is, they translate that just like that. Well, it's not June 13th. It's some other month. And it's not, the, I don't know how that works. They've got the wrong clock and they've got the wrong calendar. But they seem to get along just fine. And there's people there that love Jesus as much as we do here. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Verse 53, then the father realized that this was the exact time. Does anybody's Bible say approximate time? This was the exact time. One of my favorite Characters on TV would say there's no such thing as a coincidence. Gibbs in NCIS. This is not a coincidence, okay? This was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This, verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea and Galilee. Now if we go back just for a second, you don't need to turn there, but I can tell you it says in John chapter 2, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Upon arriving in Cana, Jesus meets a royal official, probably someone who works in Herod's court. Now, we're not talking about a judge that has a hammer and he wears a long robe, but his court would be his official government team, okay? This royal official, most commentators believe, was a member of Herod's court. Now, this is interesting because there's a number of Herods in the New Testament. And they're all in the same family. Some of you remember that old TV show, Bob Newhart, where there was a guy named Daryl and he had a brother named Daryl. Well, that, that's, every time I think about this, So there's, let's just review our Herods. First of all, there's Herod the Great. Whoa. I think he's the Great because he was the first one. Herod the Great, he ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. This is the guy, Herod the Great is the Herod in the Christmas story. He's the guy standing there in Jerusalem when the Magi show up and they say, we want to see the new king. Whoa. He thought he was the king. Jesus was born during the reign 
of Herod the Great, which is interesting for the calendar because that means Jesus could not have been born any later than 4 BC because this guy died in 4 BC. And yes, our calendars are wrong, okay? That's another whole sermon illustration, but let's just stop. The calendars are wrong. Okay, so then he dies in 4 BC. He's got two sons. We've got Herod Archelaus, and don't ask me how, who would name their kid? Can you imagine sending that little boy to first grade and having to spell your name, Archelaus? (laughs) He ruled from 4 BC, that's when his dad died, to 6 AD. He He only lasted in power 10 years because he didn't like people. And the government didn't like him, so 10 years they got him out of office. Then he's got a brother, and his brother is Herod Antipas. Now, it must be when the dad died, these two sons sort of, one sort of took over in the south and one took over in the north. Herod Antipas, he begins ruling in Galilee. And he rules from 4 B.C. when his dad died. 39 AD. This, this is also the son of Herod the Great. And this is the Herod. Herod Antipas is the one who killed John the Baptist. Do you remember that story? This Herod would have been the one who was in power when Jesus had his ministry. So this royal official who shows up in Capernaum in verse 46 was working for which one? He was working for Herod Antipas. Verse 46, once more he visited Canaan in Galilee where he turned the water into wine and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now in my Bible, verse 47, this royal official comes to Jesus and here we have a difference in translations. Some Bibles will say this dad came and he begged Jesus to go heal his son. Other Bibles will say he implored Jesus to come. Other Bibles, and you've got these Bibles... He pleaded with Jesus. Other Bibles will say he requested Jesus. Now we miss something. and We miss something in English. And you know me, I've been here for a year. I don't always refer back to the Greek New Testament. But this word, this word in English, you remember when you were in English grammar class in eighth grade? The only thing I wanted out of that class was me. I, did, I, could have, I could not have cared less about nouns and verbs and adjectives. And I, I'll tell you, if I could have cared less about all that stuff, you can't imagine how little I cared for present active participles. Mrs. Lambert, that precious woman, had to put up with me. This word in the Greek New Testament, is a present active participle. And now I know why those are important. A present active participle represents continuous and repeated action. It's nonstop. So picture this guy who has his son 16 miles away, and he is begging and begging and begging Jesus. See, there again, if we read this too fast, you've missed it. He is pleading with Jesus. Jesus, please, 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 you've got to come with me back to Capernaum. My son is, he's on death's door. The father probably believed that his son was so sick that he was about to die. And the only chance this guy has to save his son, he's got to convince Jesus to leave Cana and travel with him back to Capernaum. Now, if we read between the lines, 
There's a lot of interesting reading if you get between the lines. We can imagine that this, this father was wealthy. Because it tells us when we get to verse 51 that he had servants. Now, I would say still in America in 2020, that's a sign of wealth. All the people I know, I've known two people that have servants. That's it. But I haven't been to all your homes yet, so maybe you've got servants. But there's a sign of wealth here. It says in verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. But we all know, and we all know this, that having all the money in the world and having all the power in the world will not prevent anyone from experiencing the normal, everyday, common pains of real life. Would you agree? Money isn't going to change that. All the power in the world. In 1973, J. Paul Getty III, some of you will remember this story. 1973, J. Paul Getty III was kidnapped while he was living in Rome. J. Paul Getty III is the grandson of J.P. Getty, the oil tycoon, who in 1973 was considered to be the richest man in the world. Somebody kidnapped his son. They demanded 17 million dollar ransom. And grandpa said no. He said if I pay 17 million for that grandson, all my other grandchildren are now targets for kidnapping. He refused to pay. Five months later they got a package in the mail with an ear that had been cut off the grandson's face. They identified it, it was his ear. Now the kidnappers are willing to take $2 million or they're going to send back more pieces. He paid the $2 million and the grandson was released. Having all the money in the world, having all the power in the world, doesn't prevent us from the pains of everyday life. In fact, in that situation, it was the money that caused the problem. If J.P. Getty had been a pastor doing interim work in South Dakota, his kids would have been as safe as, nobody's going to kidnap my kids for $17 million. Right? It's the money that caused the problem. It didn't make his life better. In John 4, just because this father works for King Herod, and just because this father has enough money to hire his servants, it doesn't mean that his family is somehow separated from the everyday pains of life. In this case, this father is, I think he's just not concerned. He's very concerned that his son is going to die. While at the same time, he has faith Maybe it's just a little bit of faith, but he has faith to believe that Jesus can help his son. Now, maybe, maybe it's because he was in Cana when Jesus did the first miracle, and he saw Jesus change that water into wine. 
We don't know what it was. Not only, but here's our problem. Not only is there just as much sickness and disease and pain and sadness among rich and powerful people as there is among poor, everyday, blue-collar workers like us. I mean, we're all, nobody is immune to that kind of stuff. But both groups, rich and powerful, common every day, we all have one common problem. Nobody from either group is going to get to heaven based on their good works. There's no way to get to heaven based on good works. Jesus said in John 14, he said, I am the way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in verse 48, we have Jesus responding to the Father. He says, unless, unless you people, he's talking about this whole group, I think, here. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. See, the one thing that probably caused this man to come to Jesus, begging and begging and begging Jesus to come and heal his son, was what we just talked about a minute ago. There's a great possibility that he was in Cana the day Jesus turned water into wine. Can you imagine that? Word like that spreads like wildfire. There's this guy over here on the edge of the town. He just turned 180 gallons of water into the best wine you've ever tasted in your life, and he just did it by speaking a word. I think he's beginning to think of Jesus as some sort of a magician or magic worker, more than he's thinking about Jesus as being the Savior of the world. But faith that grows only when it's based on miracles, or faith that's only based on Incredible, unexplainable things is not biblical faith. See, there's no end to that. If the only faith you have is based on some miracle, the only way to sustain that faith is you've got to see another miracle. You've got to see another miracle, and then that isn't enough. You, there's never enough miracles. Biblical faith is not built on miracles. In verse 50, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. Now, here's another Greek word. The word go there is an imperative. It's a command. He's not giving this guy the option to stick around for a few days and I'll come with you to Capernaum. He's commanding him to go home with the promise that his son will live. But the father doesn't understand what that. The father's thinking, if I leave, if I leave Canaan now and Jesus doesn't go with me, my son's going to die. Jesus is requiring the man and here's what he requires of us, to take him at his word. To believe that when he says he's the son of God, that he is the son of God. When he says he's the Messiah the world has been waiting for, we need to believe that he is the Messiah. When, when he says he's God in the flesh, his father sent, we need to believe that he is who he said he is. We live in a world where people think there has to be a reasonable explanation for everything that happens or else it just isn't true. The Bible tells us, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith, the faith I want to have, the faith I hope we all want to have, is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. Jesus never tells us anything else about this man. This guy just comes out of nowhere and he disappears. He never tells us a story. There's no record anywhere in any of the Gospels that this guy now goes back to Capernaum and tells all his neighbors and co-workers and extended family of what Jesus did for him. This is the end of the story. 
This is a story about a private miracle that challenged a man to trust Jesus based only on his word. So let's go back. Let's go back in time. Uh, 2005, probably 2008. We moved to Minneapolis in 2005. Two or three years later, my admin assistant, her name's Lori, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she died. And it was terrible. She had two little girls. I can still remember this. I, still, I can still, if I close my eyes, I can still take myself back to that funeral service. And her husband and two little girls are sitting right here. And the girls are three and five. You know how sometimes you run into somebody over at Walmart and they start talking and you're, and you're trying to keep that. Well, of course it's Walmart because Frank's here. I wasn't even thinking of that. Or some of you might go to Target. but You know how that is. You run into somebody and they're talking up and you're trying to think. You've already got this other conversation going in your head. Like, what are they even talking about? I don't even want to hear about this. And yet you have to answer their question. Pastors have the same problem. We'll be in the middle of a sermon. I'll be in the middle. I'm preaching this sermon for this dear young lady that died. She's, and I'm thinking, how in the world does any of this make sense? Her husband's not a Christian. He's not going to bring those kids to Sunday school. And I'm preaching this funeral sermon. And it's just like I, just like I am the guy in John chapter 4 now. And it's, it doesn't make sense. And I would guess if we had the time, every person in this room has experienced in one way or another a situation in your life that doesn't make sense. There is no way to explain it. We have to trust that God is who he is, that Jesus is who he is, that he loves us and cares for us, and and there is a perfect plan for our life. And no matter how confusing it is, it makes sense to God, and someday it will make sense to us. Just remember, we report to him. He doesn't report to us. Jesus wants to believe us. He wants us to believe in his word and he wants us to trust him with every part of our lives. Genuine faith requires confidence, not in what we can see, but confidence in who Jesus said he is. Signs and wonders are exciting. It's almost like going to a magic show. Wow, how did they do that? Signs and wonders can be exciting. But genuine faith, biblical faith, rests on the promises of Scripture alone. So may God help all of us to live lives that overflow with real faith that's based on Scriptures, not on emotions. Let's close. Let's pray. We're going to ask the ushers to come. Then after we take the offering, we're going to take a five-minute break, or four minutes if you can do whatever you want to do in four minutes. If you want to come back in and listen to our little explanation of what we talked about the last few weeks. We're glad to share that. So let's close in prayer. And then we'll take the offering. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us this time together. Help us, God, every one of us, to walk with you. Help us to live our lives not based on things that don't make sense, 
but based on the fact that you are who you said you are. Help our lives to overflow with a biblical faith. Not based on the things we can see. It's based on things even when we can't see, even when things make no sense. So God, for all these great people here at Cross Point, and all of us have shared these experiences in life, may you help us to take these experiences and may you use them in our lives to make us stronger, not weaker. Walk with us, Lord. And as we take this offering, Lord, we thank you for each gift and each giver. We remind ourselves that every gift is a tangible expression of their love for you. And so we're grateful to receive these gifts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.